The following sermon by Nelson Atwood was recorded at Noble Park Evangelical Baptist Church. For more information, please visit their website at www.noblebaptist.org.au That's www.noblebaptist.org.au Attending the temple daily, 
the word that's used for attending, the word that's used for devoted in verse number 42, and the word that's used for devoted in chapter 1 and verse 14, they're all the same Greek word. What they mean is something like, and they persisted. They persisted steadfastly. They would not let go. That's a wonderful word because it kind of sets like a framework for the whole unfolding of what's happening in the book of Acts. As these men gather in the upper room before Pentecost and they're steadfastly persisting in prayer, they will not leave off prayer until God keeps the promises he has made to pour out this Holy Spirit that they will have power and we see that prayer answered. And they preach that great sermon, uh, Peter preached his great sermon on Pentecost morning. And the outflow of that is all these believers, 3,000 plus believers, are persisting together in the apostles' doctrine, in fellowship, in breaking bread, and in prayer. They're persisting. They will not let go. And then down a little further, it's interesting because the verse... The way my Bible, my ASV has it, it says day by day attending the temple together. If you take those same words and unpack them, it's, it, the flavor is more like this. Persisting with one mind in the temple every day. You say, what's so big a deal about that? The beautiful thing is the temple was a place where they went to witness and speak about Jesus Christ. And you see how it's unfolding? They begin persisting in prayer. God answers their prayer. Thousands are saved. Those thousands persist and devote themselves to the preaching of the word of God, to fellowship, to breaking of bread, to prayer. And the outflow of that is they're persisting in the temple, witnessing and teaching and telling everybody about the Lord Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, that's what we are called to do. We're called to persist in prayer, to steadfastly devote ourselves to gathering together and crying out to God that He would do His work. But we're also called to persist, to steadfastly devote in a joyful sense the Apostles' doctrine, or probably more literally, the doctrine of the Apostles and the fellowship and the breaking of bread and the prayers. We're to persist in those things. And the whole life of the church wasn't a haphazard, come and go, do as you want kind of a lifestyle. It was a devotion, a persistence to these things. What I want to do this morning is I want to look at the what's happening after the end of this sermon, the response of these people. And I was really hoping to get through verse 39, 40, 41, and 42. But as I pounded through the first couple of verses, I realized that if I persisted in going to verse number 42, you would all probably persist in getting out of the lean because it would take you so long. You just wouldn't, you wouldn't sit there anymore. So we'll leave half of it for next week. So if you, in your uh, bulletin there, it says the sermon title is The Church Identified and Devoted to Christ. Well, we're looking at the identified part this morning and the devoted part next week. And you have in your bulletin there also a little green sheet that gives you the sermon notes and the verses we'll refer to and so on. So what I want to do is dive into this. I want you to notice the order of events, the order of components that are happening in the conversion of these saints. 
Remember, they heard his words. They were listening to what Peter said. They heard all this noise, and everybody's preaching the gospel in their own native languages. And they came to look and say, what's going on? And they listened as Peter preached. And he very powerfully and very skillfully brings home to them their guilt of sin. And the Bible says that they were cut to the heart. It literally has the same idea of a horse stamping its foot on the ground and making an impression on the ground with its hoof. It impressed deeply into their hearts that they were guilty of the sin of the death of an innocent man. They were guilty of the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not only did they hear his words, not only were they cut to the heart, they also received his words. They took those words as for them. They recognized that God wasn't just speaking to the neighbor on this side, the neighbor on that side, and the guy behind them and the guy in front of them. God was speaking to them. And they heard and received what he had to say. They repented of their sin, as we saw last week, from trusting self to trusting in God, from love of self first to love of God and others, from disobedience to obedience. There was a massive change, a complete and radical turning around and going the other way. They received forgiveness of sins. They received the gift of the Holy Spirit, and they were baptized and added to their number. And then, of course, the last part, which we'll look at next week, they devoted themselves to those foundational aspects of church life. The early church identified itself with Christ and each other. The early church was known for its devotion and persistence to the faith. Remember they got them in the, in the, the Sanhedrin? You guys going to stop preaching about Jesus? And Peter says, well, you decide. Is it better for us to obey you or God? And you can think of the pin drop. Ooh, that's a tough one. What should they do? Are they obey God. And the first time I let them go, and they went out to start preaching the gospel again. I think one scene, they actually put them in jail overnight, and God came and let them out of jail and said, go back in the temple courts and keep preaching. And so they go back in the temple courts and keep preaching. And these guys in their robes all get together the next morning. They're going to have a court. And they said, bring the prisoners in. And the guards come in looking all sheepish. You know, like so standard. What are you guys doing? Well, they're not in the jail. We left them. Did you lock it up? Yeah, we locked it. Well, where are they? Well, they're out in the temple courts and they're, they're preaching about Jesus again. <laughs> and, the, and the guards and everybody a little bit embarrassed. They go and get them and they bring them in. And the close of that scene, I believe, if I remember correctly, that they lay them down on the ground. The Bible says they beat them with wads. At what point would you have said, you know, I really need to go to work today. Oh, I'm busy. You know, there's other things like, you know, I can witness in different ways rather than this. These men going out after having been beaten with rods, they walked out. And the Bible says they went on their way rejoicing that they had been counted worthy to suffer for Christ. They persisted in what God had given them to do. I don't know about your life, but I can tell you about my life. I can tell you that there is a need in my life for persistence in what God has given me to do. Persistence in preaching the gospel, persistence in living the gospel out, persistence in commitment and devotion to the things of God. 
the early church, as you read the pages of Acts, listen, let the words suck into your soul, and you will see there, there's a persistence, there's a devotion. This was so important to them that everything else fell by the wayside. I'm not advocating going out and quitting your job and stuff like that. We all have jobs, we all have responsibilities. We need to keep those responsibilities and do those things. But brothers and sisters, what's the number one passion in your life? You can say, well, it's the Lord. Really? You mind if I scan your phone for a second and see what you look on on the internet? You mind if I scroll through your YouTube channels and see what you watch? You mind if I look through your library? What is it that's the number one thing in your life? For these men and women who knew and loved the Lord Jesus Christ, as you read the book of Acts, what comes out and drives home to my heart is it was the most important thing to their lives. They lived in persistence of those things for God's glory. Well, I've asked you the last couple of weeks to some things to think about as we go through this message. I want to ask you to ask yourself, and I will ask myself the question as I go through this. Am I living the baptized life? Have I and am I fully identifying myself with Jesus Christ? Am I nailing myself to the cross alongside him and saying, I'm with Jesus. He and I are together. Have I and am I identifying myself with Christ's people? Or in short, have I and am I identified with Christ in his church? Am I persisting in the life of the Christian church? So first of all, I want you to notice that they identified themselves with Christ. And the call on all of us is to clearly identify ourselves with Jesus Christ. When I got a new job as a carpenter, I worked with some very rough men. Language that would peel paint off the wall and operate foundations and all kinds of I heard it every day of my life. And I'll tell you, it was a struggle. Every day of my Every day of my working life, I heard this language. But you know what I discovered? Well, because of the way property worked in Canada, we, that we most ever had was maybe 60 weeks or 12 weeks of work because we do a house and then finish and you get another job and another house or a couple of houses and finish. So you always going from job site to job site. You're always working with different men and occasionally coming around working with the same men again. And I discovered that if I nailed my colors to the mast, if I made it absolutely clear from day one, I'm a Christian, I believe in Jesus Christ, I follow and I walk with Christ, I will not participate in that or that or that. If I did that, all of a sudden, the ease with which going to work every day and resisting the temptation to imbibe in what they were doing was so much easier. And so I'm asking us all, they identified themselves clearly with Christ. The question to us is, are we and have we identified ourselves clearly with Christ? I want you to notice the text. It says there, in verse number 40 and 41, it says, And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourself from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized. And they were added that day about 3,000 souls. Y'all know what baptism is all about. We are a Baptist church. It's not hard to walk in here and see that there is a baptismal behind me. We practice baptism. We did it a few weeks ago with three people in this church. What is baptism? 
It's identifying ourselves publicly with Christ. But the Bible talks about a number of different baptisms. It talks about it in different ways. So I'm going to hold this to verses down. I'm just going to go down through them. I'm just going to highlight some of the ways in which baptism is described in the Scriptures. In Mark chapter 1 and verse 5, the Bible says that all the country of Judea and Jerusalem were going out to him, and that's John the Baptist, and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. That was a baptism for the purpose of repentance. Before the Spirit of God was poured out, before men knew salvation in the name of Christ, they were baptized, they were committing themselves and saying publicly, I'm going to repent, I will repent of sin. In fact, John the Baptist looked one day and saw some Pharisees coming down. He looked at me, this is a great way to approach people. You brood of vipers. I'm sure he was some friends with that comment. You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits. Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. What was he saying? Repentance is not just what comes out of here. It's what's living and existing in here and here and here. Wherever you go, whatever you do. He was saying, you bear fruit of it. There's a baptism of repentance in Luke 3.16. John answered them all and said, I baptize you with water. But he was mightier than I is coming. The strap of his sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, and fire. And he was speaking about Pentecost coming. John the Baptist understood that there was a day coming when God's Holy Spirit, which he was filled with from the womb, was going to be poured out on all people. And there'd be a great baptism. And when we come to know Jesus Christ as our Savior, as Peter promised in Acts 2, we receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. We're baptized. We're immersed in the Spirit. In fact, later on, John, or no, Peter says to uh, some of the other Jews, what hinders these Romans from being baptized, seeing they have received the Spirit as we have? So their water baptism followed their being baptized in the Holy Spirit, clear evidence that they were saved. In Acts 1 verse 5, that promise is kept. They were going to be baptized with uh, the Spirit. That was the promise repeated by Jesus. In Luke 12, verse 50, Jesus describes a different baptism. He says, I'll try to get in English. Luke 12, verse 50, Jesus describes a different baptism. He says, I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. What's he talking about? Water baptism? No. He meant a baptism of suffering and pain. A baptism of fire. He looked at the two men, those sons of Zebedee that came with their mother. And he said, are you willing to be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with? Oh, sure, they said, thinking of great glory. Well, they didn't get it. They did later on. And they realized he meant suffering. It was a baptism of suffering. In Romans chapter 6 and verse 3, the Bible says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. We go down into the water, we, we, we bury people under the water, and we baptize them into his death. And we're going to talk about what that means, and living a baptized life in just a minute. 
In 1 Corinthians 12, verse 13, the Bible talks about how in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. When we received the Spirit of God, we were immersed into the whole universal church of believers in Jesus Christ. You received the Spirit, you received forgiveness of sins, you became a Christian, you were immersed in the one universal body of Christ, baptized into it. Included in it, wrapped into it. In Galatians 3 27, the Bible says, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. And we talked last Sunday night a little bit about this and the idea of sanctif sanctification. We talked about how going through the waters of baptism wasn't an end in itself. And one of the things that really scares me, and I see it popping up here and there, is this trend nowadays that you go to the church, maybe with your parents, and you get saved, and you get baptized, and you go back into the world and live any way you please, and it's all okay because you've done the salvation thing, and you've done the baptism thing, and it doesn't matter. You're saved. You're, you're saved. You can live however you please. I just love the Bible. I'm sorry, a little bit of heart, but it is not in the Bible. The Bible does not ever countenance that kind of salvation. It is a false salvation. The reality is we come, we walk down into the tank and we get baptized and we display to everybody that we've put off the old man and we put on Christ. We're now living new lives. We're new creatures in Christ. So everything is different. Everything has changed. We died with Christ. We're buried with Christ under the water. And we're raised with Christ to live new lives. We're displaying to the watching church, to friends and believers, that we have come to faith in Christ and repentance of sin. We're displaying that we have been baptized and filled with the Holy Spirit. We're displaying that we have been by Christ baptized and immersed into the church. We've died with Christ to sin. Stop and think about that. We have died to sin. Yeah, the issue of sin, sin still resides in us. And we'll still wrestle with it for the rest of our lives. We'll still struggle to put it off. But it shows that we have made that conscious decision in the inspiration of power of the Spirit of God to put off sin, to no longer let sin rule and reign in our lives. We are living a new life. Paul says in Romans 18, 13, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. What he's saying is that becoming a Christian, that being baptized, being brought into the body of Christ is a work where we put off the old man, we put off sin, and we put on the new man, we put on Christ. In Colossians 3 verse 5, the Bible says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, or grief, which is idolatry. Put them now, we often think about the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, and we think about how he died, and how we've been called to die with Christ. 
And I think sometimes we make a misassociation. We think Jesus died once on a cross and it took about three hours and he was laid in the tomb and he rose again and it was all done. It's the same for us. Not really, no. Actually, his death was momentary, if you like, a very short amount of time, but our deaths, like that, are a whole lifetime. We live our whole lives putting to death sin, putting to death. Putting to death simply means separating ourselves from those old habits and those old sins. Peter, Luke is describing the early church here and saying they were baptized. They were showing and identifying themselves with Christ that a massive and radical change had occurred in them. But it isn't just putting to death. It's also being raised with Christ to live a new life. By the power of the Holy Spirit, we put on Christ. In Romans 13 and verse 14, the Bible says, But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Galatians 3.27, the Bible says, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. What does it mean? It means to strive in the power of the Holy Spirit to live following the example of Christ, to live as he lived, to walk as he walked, to put on the new creature, to, to show that there is now a new power and control. This is a bad analogy, but think of it this way. There's someone different driving the boat. No longer is itself driving the boat, it's Christ. No longer is it in the desires of the flesh driving the boat and running my life. It's Christ who runs it. I put off the old man. I put on the new man. The Bible says in Ephesians 4, verse 22 and 24, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created out of the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. Being identified with Christ means we have and we are dying to sin and to self and to the world every single day. That's a lifelong thing. Maybe you're like me, maybe not. In some ways I hope you're not. One way I maybe I hope you are. As you look sometimes and go, it just seems like it's never going to end. <laughs> right? He's like, wow, I'm struggling with this sin again. And I'm struggling with that attitude and that problem again. It usually hits me when someone cuts me off on driving home from church one day, or some days, or most days. And you like that same reaction of, wow, it comes out roaring up off me inside you. You realize, no, that attitude is wrong. It's ungodly. It's unbiblical. Jesus would not have responded like that. And we put it off again, and we put it to death again, and we seek forgiveness for it again, and we cry out to God that one day we will not react like that, and we resolve in our hearts and our minds, we resolve that we will not do this again. We will strive to please the Lord again. The Bible says in Romans 12, it's great life verses. If you're a young person here, I encourage you to memorize these verses. Romans 12, 1 and 2. If you have one, read I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. 
Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Put it to death. Offer your bodies a living sacrifice. Putting off the old and putting on the new. These new converts to Christ, these 3,000 people, these new believers were baptized that day. And they were showing everybody, everybody that everything was different. And they proved it. The next verses show it. Remember at the beginning of the story? They're going out the streets. They're hearing all the sound. And they're going, look at what's going on. We all hear them speaking the wonders of God in their own native languages. And they're Galileans? It's like us saying, you know, there are these wisdom coming out of these men, and they're all from the or they're all from the world. I don't know, someplace. I have cousins in the world, this is how I relate to that. And so you go, like, well, what's with these people? They're, they're, they're not from the University of Melbourne, they're not from Cambridge and Oxford. They're smart people. Or these ones are. And these men are standing on their Galileans and they're speaking this. How could this possibly be? And they're so discount the possibility that, that this is from them that they're not even asking the Galileans, they're asking each other, how could this be? Look at the change. They devoted themselves to the apostles' doctrine. They were persisting in fellowship. They sat down alongside these trees and, and Galileans and fishermen and roughnecks, they sat alongside them and they broke bread together. They sat alongside them and sat underneath the ministry of these men who had been with Jesus for three years and heard all the things that they said. And as the Spirit of God brought remembrance of all the things that Jesus did and said to those twelve men's minds, and they spoke to all of these Jews from all over the world, sitting there, listening, taking in, not just listening half-heartedly, listening persistently, devoting themselves to it. A radical change. No longer going to the temple to offer sacrifices because now they understood that Jesus is the one sacrifice once for all offered. It was done. There was a radical change in them. Brothers and sisters, God has not changed. The gospel has not changed. Spirit of God, he hasn't changed. Why is it, brothers and sisters, that our reaction to the gospel is so slack? Why? You know what I think about the problem with us is? I'm not saying with you, I'm saying with us, with all of us is we're too distracted, we've got too many fingers in the pie of this world, and we realize that if we make a stand like that for Christ, we will lose some of those things in this world. It will cost us something. Oh, it's easy for them. And you know, come on, they didn't have much to lose, right? Middle East, first century, they didn't have cars, they didn't have TVs, they didn't have big houses, they didn't even have hardly they didn't have houses. They didn't have much to lose. They lost their lives. That's one. They lost their lives. It cost them something to follow Christ. These believers 
people together. It was a radical change. They identified themselves with Christ. I want you to notice something else here, too. In the text, it says they were baptized, and it says there were added that day about 3,000 souls. I want to talk about something that's maybe not the most popular topic in the world. I want to talk about membership. You say, why membership? Church membership, Chinese. You say, why would you go from this to church membership? Because in that day, in that church, that's what they had. You say, well, is that, the word membership is not in my New Testament. How, how, how can you see that there? Well, notice it says they were added, and then they give a number. 3,000 souls were added. This is verse number 41. And they were added that day about 3,000 souls. They kept records. They kept lists. There was very clearly in the New Testament times, in this time, that there was membership. There was an understanding that these people are now included in the number, in the gathering of the local church. And one thing we have to realize is that in the church sense, there is two ways to understand the church. Well, not two ways. One way with two aspects. Put that one. There is the universal church. Right? So I go over to Canada, I meet up with friends in Canada, they're believers, we go to church together, we're part of the same universal body of Christ. You ever been somewhere on the train or in a stop or something, and you run to someone, and you start talking, and you start looking at them kind of a little bit, like, there's something different about you that I kind of relate to, and then you, you sort of drop the hand. Well, you know, I was at church the other day, another person arrived, pop up, oh, you were at church? Oh, I was too. And all of a sudden, bam, you realize. There's a fellowship there because you're both believers in Christ. You're both part of the universal body of Christ. I remember talking on the phone with this lady named Suzanne. And I was asking about my car getting fixed. And she said, what do you do for a living? I said, I'm the pastor of Grove Park Baptist Church. Oh, wow. She said, did you know that Andrews became a Christian? I didn't know that. And I've been going to Andrews for years. Well, they both sitting right there. Don't worry about it. And, and it was so cool. And there was a connection because we realized, hey, we're both part of the body of Christ. And even though I fellowship and I identify myself happily with Noble Park Baptist Church, which is a local, visible body of Christ, we still have great fellowship because we're still part of the universal body of Christ. And the reality is that the Bible, when it talks about the church and the body of Christ, describes it in those terms so that what's true of the universal body of Christ is actually true also of the local one. And the universal one's an invisible one. You say, how is it invisible? I can see you, you can see me. We're both part of the universal body of Christ. How is it invisible? It's invisible in this sense. Where was the last time the entire universal body of Christ got together for a, a day of worship? Well, it never has. Is it going to? Yeah. When will it? When Jesus comes back? Can you imagine what's going to be like? You know what it's like when everybody comes to church and you have a great fellowship and you're catching up with people and you're seeing how they've grown the Lord and you're sharing the Lord with each other and you're enjoying that wonderful fellowship. Can you imagine what it would be like to walk around and go, Abraham, hey, Isaac, David, Peter, Charles Spurgeon, Whitfield. And you can think of thousand other names, each of you, and you're going to go, wow, we all have that connection, we're all part of the universal body of Christ, 
and that will never happen until Christ returns on that great day when he returns. And for the first time, he goes through the entire church and he separates sheep and goats, lost, saved. And we'll be gathered together. I will be so excited because we'll be seeing believers we've neither never met or we haven't seen for many years because they've gone on ahead of us. And that day. But between now and then, every little church has its put wherever it's put. Little Park Baptist, Barrett Baptist, uh, Dean Church over there. Wherever it is they're put, they are to be visible reflections or visible presentations of what the universal body of Christ is, right? So there's both a universal, there's a visible local one. There is a big difference. We've talked about some is all true believers, like having faith like Abraham from all times, past, present, and future, whereas we're defined and, and localized to this little spot here. And at our conversion, the moment we trusted Christ, we were included in that huge universal body of Christ. But here, these believers here, we see Abraham was already part of this body. So was Isaac, so was David, so was Solomon, so the other believers back in the Old Testament. But they weren't here. And so here in Jerusalem, as they're preaching the gospel, there was a local church established. And it very clearly defined. As the church began to grow and, and the understanding of how the church was to function, throughout, you read through towards the latter books of the New Testament, what do you find? Elders and deacons, you find lists of widows and older widows and younger widows, you find lists of different things recorded for us that show us that the church was an organized body of Christ. Right? So we have church membership because church membership recognizes that local body and it recognizes a commitment to that local body that says, I belong to the Lord Jesus Christ and I fellowship and I worship and I'm tying myself and binding myself to the believers of Logan Park Baptist Church for a lot of reasons. If you flip your little sheet over on the back side there, there's nine reasons that popped out on the bottom. This is like, I got, we got this little that case of Bible church when it was a pastor there. Nine reasons. I think there are more. But here's nine. I'm going to run through them quickly. Very quickly. Why are we going to come back to become members of a church? Because number one, identification with Christ, local church of Global Park, it's identification. We belong to a body. We have a responsibility to that body. That body is responsible to look after and care and, and shepherd and feed and guide and fellowship and pray together and pray for. Secondly, there's comprehensive pastoral care. What does that mean? That means we get involved in your life. Life is a nosy. No, no, I'm not nosy at all. But what I do want to do is pray for you. What I do want to do is be able to minister to you. What we as an eldership, Hoover and Wesson, I want to be able to do is pray for you and encourage you and strengthen you. And when we see issues in your life come up, we're going to come alongside, put our arm around your shoulders and go, hey, bro, he says, listen, that's unwise. The Bible says this, and we begin to help and gently shepherd. When there's coming and going and drifting around, it's not... It's not in your best interest. It's in your best interest, brother and sister, to fasten yourselves to a body of Christ and allow that body to minister to you. And it's a two-way street. The church 
just doesn't need you to fill up the chairs. We need you to minister to us as we minister to you. We need that connection that enables pastoral care. Because pastoral care, I put it with a capital P, you can equally put it with a small P, and every believer caring for the... I got, I got three texts this week from somebody in this room. And it was a thrill of my life. I've like seen texts of Bible verses now. If you got a mobile phone, you'll probably get one. If you don't get one, make sure you talk to them and get your number, because you'll get them. But I got three texts from someone this week to say, oh, that's great, so much. Do you have any idea how much God used those texts in my life? They came at just the right moment with unbelievably poignant verses. And that dear brother, in using his simple mobile phone and knowing, hey, Nelson's a pastor, Nelson's a part of my church, forget the fact he's a pastor, he's a brother in Christ, he needs some encouragement, maybe he needs some rebuke, and I'm going to send some texts to him, some verses to him, and that came at just the right moment, and comprehensive pastoral care as a body means that we minister to each other and build one another up in Christ. Thirdly, is not unity of the body of Christ. When we get together and we say, hey, you know what? Let's be honest, okay? Uh, Brian and I were at a wedding yesterday with a couple of people there too. And Brian was Pastor Brian and I was Pastor Nelson. And you can put us together and there's some significant differences, right? I mean, maybe he's Irish, right? Uh, he's short, uh, taller, he's skinny. between us that is striking because we both love the Lord Jesus Christ and what we have in common is great. It's wonderful. It's Christ. And there's so many other things that we have in common. We can say, we got going to us supposed to be in the receiving line doing, uh, I never said what the Jacob Stewart thing that God wants to buy. And we got talking. All of a sudden I realized that there was a hole in the receiving line. I was supposed to be over there doing this thing with people and I was over there talking to Brian. Instead, we were talking about something to do with spiritual things. There's a unity there. When we get together as a body of Christ and we say, this is what we believe in the scriptures and we nail it down. That's what we're going through, what we believe in the evening services. We're saying, this is what we believe. And we have a unity around Christ as a body together and we can work on each other. And you know, I've probably got some things that are not quite right. I'm not perfect yet. I'm not for a very long time. I guarantee you, Brian just will say the same thing about it. He's not perfect yet. He hasn't figured it all out. As I walk alongside Brian and Brian walks up alongside me, we begin to work with each other. Or better yet, the Spirit of God begins to take each person and work on the other. And it rubs off those disagreements and those rough spots and the living stones that Christ is bringing together in that holy temple work together and they begin to form and bond together and make one body of Christ. Isn't it amazing what God is doing? And we do membership because that celebrates and recognizes our community. It encourages godly commitment. I've discovered one thing about the generation that we live in. The dirty C word isn't what it used to be. We don't like to men. Oh, you know how busy I got things to do. Yeah, so do I. 
And we don't like being committed. But you know what? What you read as you read through the book of Acts, allow those stories to soak into your mind. As you let the flavor of those words run over your heart, what you'll discover is those men and women were absolutely committed. They were committed to the body. They were committed to Christ and His church. I hear a phrase tossed around. It just makes my skin crawl in fear. I love Jesus, but I hate the church. You do realize that Jesus loved the church and died for it. How can you say, I love Jesus and I hate the church? How can you say you love him and hate the thing that he loved to the point of death? It's wrong. Christ and his church, he is the head, we are the body. You ever seen a disembodied, a dis, disembodied head fall that way? It doesn't work. It is disembodied, the thing is dead. We are the body of Christ, intimately connected to Christ. To say I love Christ and hate the church is literally to say, I love Jesus and hate myself. Because when you're a believer in Christ, you are part of the church. Brothers and sisters, church membership encourages that godly commitment. Church discipline assumes membership. You read through Matthew 18, the whole story of how it works. Read through second, first and second Corinthians, the story of discipline there. There's a very clear definition of what's inside the church and what's outside the church. The only way that works if there's a clear demarcation of what is the church or what's not. And membership it assumes that. It has to. Membership is important for growth. I can go on, but I'll just... For a second time, I'm going to leave it there. So much more here. But brothers and sisters, what are we going to get across to all of us? But look up for the last three minutes or so. What I want to get across to all of us is these believers, filled with the same Holy Spirit that we are filled with, serving the same Lord Jesus Christ that we serve, loving God, the same God that we love. They persisted in these things. They identified themselves with them. And as persecution arose in the church of Jerusalem, identifying with Christ was a whole lot more costly. You know the stories unfolds. Right? Stephen, the first martyr, Paul gets broke out of shape, was going around seizing people, throwing them in prison, killing them, torturing them for their faith in Christ. To be a Christian within those first early years, not many of them, but they suffered for their faith. Brothers and sisters in Christ, it's a call on all of us to persist in the things of God. It's a call on all of us as a church to publicly identify ourselves both with Christ through baptized, baptized life, not just a moment, and to persist in those things that God might use us. I want to see this church grow. I don't just mean every empty space filled in. I mean grow in here. Grow in godly men and women who are meeting together and praying together. Grow in godly young people who are going out in the streets in Noble Park in Melbourne and preaching the gospel and seeing people say, I heard last night that a bunch of people got together to play games and celebrate and be together. Praise God for that. They want to have fellowship as a youth group. Great. 
people want to be built up, focused on Christ, persisting in these things, tied together. This ought to be the best thing of all of our lives, not just one little army. Does that make sense? Let's pray. Let's pray. Loving Heavenly Father, we come before you and we again just stop and consider the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, he is the cornerstone. He is the foundation stone. He is, as some versions use it, he's the capstone, both the foundation and the glory point of the church. Father, we thank you that he is the head of the body. And you have taken and you're making us as living stones. You're putting us alongside one another that we might minister to one another. That having identified ourselves with Christ, we might be formed into a spiritual house. That we might get together and proclaim the excellencies of Christ, not only to each other, but to a world that desperately needs to hear the gospel. As looking for a savior. Is looking for an answer and trying everything it can to find one. And Father, we have the answer. It's Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Father God, my thoughts were not as organized as I wanted today. But I pray, I plead with you, O oh God, that you would take, that you would speak to every single heart in this room. Father, challenge us all. Lord, I need to be challenged. Challenge me too, Lord. Challenge us that we might understand the reality of what it means to be a believer, to be a baptized believer, living a baptized life, persisting steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, in fellowship, in breaking bread and prayer. Lord God, I pray that you would do a great work in this church. Make us what we ought to be, Father. Lord, I pray that you would put within us a craving to be together, to be building one another up in Christ, to be encouraging one another. Father, I pray too for a craving for commitment in this church. Lord, in my own heart, Lord, work in all of us. I plead with you. Father, you promised that the work that you began in us, you will. Father, do the work that you have to do today in each of us. Father, I give you thanks for this church. I thank you, O oh God, for the ministry that's gone on here for many years. The gospel has been faithfully preached here. Father, we pray that you would bring forth fruit from that ministry, that this church would be built up and encouraged and strengthened. Father, we pray that you would raise up more elders and more deacons, raise up missionaries, raise up evangelists from this church who will go out and preach the gospel. Father, raise up pastors and teachers from this church that will be involved here and other places, used to preach and teach the apostles' doctrine, the truths of scripture, that another generation might carry on faithfully to the end. Father, we realize yet again that you have given us a baton that must be handed on to another generation. Father, we plead with you, oh God, do the work to raise them up. Give us the wisdom and the strength 
to look to that next generation and hand on the baton, that they might run with it and the gospel might go forward if the Lord Jesus be not come back. Father, free us from complacency. Free us from the comfort. Father, give us a holy zeal for God, for His kingdom. A holy zeal to see the gospel go out. A holy zeal to live lives that are pleasing to you in every aspect. Oh God, we ask you these things. We know, oh God, that it is only a work of your Holy Spirit that can accomplish them. And so we ask. We do so in Jesus' name. Amen.